Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we've got a lot to get to tonight, so we're going to get right into it. 22 shows announced for the European leg of the 2024 tour this morning, and it's about what was expected. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say that there's nothing really too surprising here. There's nothing surprising, to be honest. The only question that I have is, will any shows be added? There's a, I only see a couple of, a couple of stretches where something could be added. The first is between June 3rd and June 12th. And then from June 14th to June 27th, there are just, there's just one show. So I guess additional Italian or Spanish shows could be added there. And there's always a question of Glastonbury, which this year is June 26th through June 30th. And so with that time frame, the only time that Bruce could play would be June 29th. But that still would leave him with only one day uh, to rest after the show in the Netherlands. Yeah, and perhaps they would do that. There are two cities on the European leg where there's only one day between show one and show two. I think that has a lot to do with the venues and probably they weren't available and uh, the Milan dates match with what I believe was rumored back when they were first going to announce the European leg. Since then, of course, Bruce unfortunately had his health problems and they had to rejigger the dates with the new touring parameters. Some of the venues are stadiums, some are open fields. I believe in Bergen, Norway, the show is actually on the docks, which seems a bit strange, but you know, they're, had to find where they could play, and these are the dates. So uh, people will enjoy it, I'm sure, wherever they take place. But as we know from the summer of 2023, I think the stadium shows with the actual real infrastructure and not sort of these made-up venues in the middle of nowhere, that would be my preference for sure. Oh, obviously. I'm not really sure. I would want to go to an open field kind of show. And the only other thing I want to point out is that the last show, as announced, I don't know if if an additional show at Wembley Stadium could could be done, but uh, it ends on July 25th in London, and ironically, July 26th is the opening day of the Olympics in Paris. So, if he uh, intended to take a couple of weeks off for to watch Jessica uh, compete, then they uh, nailed it perfectly here. And I don't know what the exact dates are of her event, presuming that she's in it, which I think most people do say that's likely. And then they'll have a couple of weeks off after the Olympics before they return to the States, which is pretty much the traditional time frame in terms of what they do between Europe and the U.S. It, again, they're not breaking any uh, <laughs> new ground here. The uh, summer tour in Europe running from May through July and then picking up in the States a couple of weeks later, obviously, is something that they have done many, many times and worked perfectly for them. There are definitely creatures of habit. When is the first show in the United States? Uh, I believe after, it's August, August 15th in Pittsburgh. Okay. All right. So that's to come back to an arena. So, and obviously, I guess we're all hoping for uh, MetLife shows to be added around Labor Day weekend. So uh, that, I guess I would be on lookout for that early next year. And then it doesn't seem like there's any other room for, for more for more dates at all anywhere in the United States. I'm going to take a guess that they'll probably add something in Boston. That would be the other city that you'd think when he's in the Northeast that'll hit. But yeah, we'll we'll have to see if they add any of the other U.S. cities that they've missed so far, St. Louis and Asheville. I, I don't know about those. It wouldn't surprise me if those get left out. Now, you did see Mr. Springsteen over the weekend. 
not performing, but you heard him speak at the 50th anniversary event for the release of Wild and the Innocent at the Springsteen Archives. We're going to do the 50th anniversary of that record in our next episode, so we won't spend too much time on it now, but do you want to just give us a brief rundown on what took place? Sure. It was uh, was a lot of fun, to say the least. It was a lot of talking, a lot of stories from from 1973, 1974, from being both on the road and in the studio. Um, the most uh, the most interesting item for me is that Bruce basically said he had the all the songs written and they were pretty much set in stone uh, before they entered the studio to record them. He said there weren't much rehearsals uh, for the recording, but obviously they had been working on most of those songs while on the road. So. Uh, maybe they didn't need any rehearsing at that point. And it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, disappointed Bruce didn't perform one of the songs, but I, I kind of get it. And uh, But he did kind of play, he sang some backing vocals on Sunday night when he uh, when they did a little help from my friends at the New Jersey Hall of Fame induction for, for his wife, Patty. Uh, so he had a pretty busy weekend. Yeah, he had a great line in that speech that really cracked me up when he said that her albums would be better known if she didn't live or I think he said if she wasn't married to an attention whore who sucks all the air out of the room. Yeah, that pretty much uh, sums it up. <laughs> I would like to think that they would be big uh, regardless, but because I really think Rumble Doll is a just a tremendous album. But it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, probably a lot of people kind of shook her off as just being Bruce's wife. So probably does not get the kind of respect that she really deserves in the overall music uh, community. And he did promise that her album will be coming out soon, <laughs> which cra- <laughs> cracked me up. Oh my God. His- they both, they both suffer from that, don't they? Well, we'll see. I mean, he seemed pretty definitive about her record, but of course, as we know from the constant discussion, <laughs> he has made that statement now about tracks two and several other things a couple of times. So we'll see if, if she can actually get her record out. And Well, well, he, even regarding Patty herself, I believe her bio in the Broadway, uh, in the Broadway uh, playbill actually said something about working on an album that will be out soon. So even just from from her point of view, without even bringing in her husband to the conversation, she's been talking about this for six years. Well, we look forward to hearing it. Maybe we'll get her on the show when the album comes out. That'd that be would nice. be kind of cool. That would be and very cool. It would. So, and and with that, let's get back to the rising when we last left. And we do promise we're going to finish the tour in this episode. I know it's gone on for a while, but when we last left. Bruce and the Street Band had finished in Milan. Now they came back to the States. They opened the Giant Stadium, a 10-night stand, but with a twist. There were seven nights in the first part, which was in July, and then there were three nights later on in August. Yeah, I think splitting up the the stand did kind of mess up some of the, of the momentum, or it didn't really allow him to get the momentum going, at least on the first part. It's so it's strange because he did a seven night stand to start off the U.S. leg, and there were only two tour debuts uh, among those seven shows, which would just be mind blowing, um, considering that the shows were in New Jersey. The only debuts were Adam Raised the Cane and Ninety Six Tears, which was only done because Garland Jeffries was there. So he yeah. uh, he was still kind of mining the uh, the east uh, the classic East Street era uh, material going back to 
a lot of stuff from Born to Run, Darkness, The River, uh, even USA, and not really breaking too much ground there. No, I got there on the 18th and I saw the final five shows and I really don't consider any of those shows to have been particularly great. They were very good. I thought the show on July 21st in the pouring rain was a tremendous amount of fun, much like Sal talked about with the Milan show. But none of these shows really came together. There were a couple of odd moments. July 26th, which if I recall properly, was a Saturday night after Mary's place. He audible to my hometown and that really sucked the air out of the building and and the crowd sort of died. It never really came back then, which was strange at the time. He opened the encores with 10th Avenue, I think, trying to get the energy back into the building and even said to the crowd, uh, I forget exactly what he said, but it was like, let's go, something like that. And he knew that the crowd had been lost. And as I thought about it in preparation for tonight's episode, I was wondering to myself, did the rising material, uh, and of course, I'm ex- except for the rising and Lonesome Day, which work great, but did some of the other songs not really work as well in the stadiums as they did in the arenas? And I, I think there's probably something to that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, material like Worlds Apart and Counting on a Miracle, they just uh, didn't quite work in the stadiums, as you said. It's not because they weren't rockers, because obviously they were, but they just didn't become they didn't become fan favorites from from the start, like like the Rising Lonesome Day and and Sunny Day uh, were. So I think uh, by the time he he got back to the stadiums in the states, some of those songs had kind of outplayed their welcome, and it was time to maybe try to find something new. and And he did uh, going forward, and the tour really really opened up later. Yeah, and the the seventh night, which you would think a seventh night in Jersey would be so big, that show had a weird feel to it as well because it felt, I think, short to me. I was excited because it opened with Downbound Train, although he tweaked the arrangement so that Susie was dominant at the end (laughs) instead of the synths, and I didn't think that worked as well. Uh, No offense to her, and she's wonderful, but I thought the Bruce's choice of arrangement there was a bit odd. and. There were several other things in that show, one that was actually sort of a mind-blowing twist where he played meeting across the river and the the crowd stood up expecting Jungle Land to start and he went at the back streets, (laughs) which was really strange. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was very strange to say the least. I was getting excited to hear Jungle Land because I always like to hear Jungle Land in stadiums and I actually up to that point, I'd never heard it in one. So I was hoping to hear the big song in the, in the big stadium, but Backstreet's is a, is a pretty good consolation prize. It was, and it was a good show. Again, nobody's knocking these shows, but I think, you know, as we've been talking about the archive series and what could potentially be choices from this tour, none of these shows would have been high on our list had they been able to access them, right? No, uh, not really. Not compared to what came later. And the interesting thing about July 27th is that uh, what was sound checked was was Cover Me, Better Days, and Lucky Town. And then even on the handwritten set list, he had Human Touch and Cover Me. And those are two songs that, to me, would have elevated the show considerably, but he um, he opted not to do them. I agree that those songs would have helped. And the sound checking of Better Days and Lucky Town provides a little clue as to what was going to happen 
a month or so down the line when things did shift. And, and I think that that really was a key thing because as I look back on it, I think the audience by that point was expecting something a little bit different and he would deliver it later on. But uh, let's move on from Giant Stadium. They went to Foxborough along the same lines of what you were talking about. Again, not much in the way of tour debuts here. He did do one mystery train, which was played in honor of Sam Phillips, who had recently died. And were you at either of those shows in Foxborough? I was not. Okay, so those not. are two of the shows we didn't see. Right, and and the, well, and the tribute to Sam Phillips was the first of, of three on, on this leg. He also did I Walked the Line for Johnny Cash in D.C. and Chapel Hill, and my rides here uh, in Toronto for Warren Zevon. Yeah, and after Foxborough, they went to Pittsburgh, where uh, the show opened with Jackson Cage. So that's a pretty interesting opening. It also included Further on Up the Road, which, of course, was fairly rare on the Rising Tour. But he was in this mode. I mean, the shows were pretty static. Even though he did change songs from night to night, the feel of the show felt static. You agree with that, right? Yes, I do. Uh, And and the Pittsburgh show, it had some, it had potential. Uh, Fade Away was soundchecked multiple times before the show, and it was even on the set list. But it just, it didn't make it. I don't know how much that would have uh, pushed things forward, but he was still doing, as you said, 73 to 84. And there was not much, uh, not much beyond that. I, I guess it was rare for him to do blinded and further on up the road, but it still felt like uh, just kind of mining the classics. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've always talked about on the reunion tour was that he used the songs that hadn't been played in so long to freshen up the show. And and we saw that, especially in the 15-night stand at the Meadowlands, the 10 nights at the Garden. Of course, the 10 nights at the Garden also had the American Skin controversy and the other new songs that came in. So that's even different from the Meadowlands. But especially earlier in the tour, he used the songs we hadn't seen. Shockers, Incident, Serenade, Frankie, it was just an incredible run of songs. He didn't have that here on the rising tour. And as you're saying, a lot of the material at this point in the tour was focused on that classic era, which there's probably some people out there saying, what could be wrong with that? And nothing is wrong with it. And we're not criticizing the shows as being bad. They just, if we were making a list of shows that they should release as archives, as we've been mentioning throughout the entire series on the rising tour i don't think a lot of them would have come from this segment of the tour no not until philadelphia and right and you're right and that and is a, the next a, city up after pittsburgh <laughs> now you attend the two of these three shows the first show sort of continues along the same line that we've been talking about but over the next two shows things do start to pick up a little why don't you talk a little about that Yes, uh, on August 9th, it was a Saturday night, and yeah, he he started bringing some different stuff in there. He played Where the Bands Are, which he had done in New Jersey, I'll I'll give him that. Also did I'm a Rocker, and our friend Jason was not there for that one. But he also brought in Tougher Than the Rest uh, as a a happy anniversary to Patty. And and I think that was kind of like the start of it. He also... He did do Trapped as well, and so it was it was a good show, and you felt the energy starting to really build. I mean, it was Saturday night in Philly. How could there not be energy? 
But it wasn't until the next night on Monday that things really kind of exploded. Uh, he opened with From Small Things. And obviously that was a song the E Street Band had never performed live. And so that was kind of a holy shit moment uh, for me and for about a thousand people in that stadium. <laughs> and and that was like, okay, well, anything is on the table at this point. And then the rest of the opening segment included Be True and Atlantic City. And after Mary's Place, the the slow epic was Streets of Philadelphia. Obviously not exactly uh, a surprise there, but it was the encores, which really uh, brought the house down. Uh, he opened with a full band incident on 57th Street and place was going nuts and then at the uh, request of a sign uh, i'm going down made its first east street appearance in 17 years i think since 1986 and it was uh bruce referred to those beautiful homemade signs and and, and what i love listening to that because i he mocks the song he's basically giving commentary that he doesn't think it's a very artfully written song <laughs> and he's really funny about it it's forgotten masterpiece right yeah. 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 He uh yeah, didn't think too highly of it, but he they had a lot of fun with it and the crowd had a lot of fun with it. And it was Ramrod which brought out the Howling at the Moon. There was a full moon that night. And the camera guys uh they they focused on it. They showed it on the big screen and Bruce and Steve saw it and saw the moon above the stadium and they they were literally howling at the moon. And so that was that was a pretty damn cool moment. And uh and then right before Rosie, he started strumming the guitar. Uh, I was expecting the whole, uh, what is it? Um, the Jay and the American song come a little bit closer. And then, uh, but no, Pretty Flamingo. And that was another holy shit moment. First time since, what, 75, 78? And that was, that was pretty special. Now, what do you think brought all of this out? This show had a very different feel, right, than the shows you had seen at Giant Stadium just two and a half, three weeks before? It did. It was, uh, I felt like it was the third night. It was one they had, they had announced after the first two went on sale. So people who were there wanted to be there. They were, it was more than just an event. It was more than just something to do on a Saturday night or Friday night. So you kind of had the feeling that it was just full of full of bigger fans or, or huge fans. And we can speculate Bruce was working on the essential bonus disc at the time. So that's where Fault from Small Things came from. And I guess he knew people would know that song. Uh, it was obviously a big, big song for down the shore for, for many years. And it was time to break it out. And I don't know. It's a good question. What brought this out? And I guess there was just an energy in, in the building that night that the uh, that he really fed upon. Would you say this is one of the best shows you saw on this tour? I believe it was. Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, there were a lot of great shows, especially in September into October and actually into August. And this one, yeah, would be top three or four. And unfortunately, this is one that they did try to extract from the, from those legendary hard drives that, uh, for the, for the archive series, but nope. Could, couldn't get, couldn't get it to happen, unfortunately. So this was going to be a selection had they been able to pull it off. Yep. Yes, sir. So yeah, let that that's quite uh, maddening to hear, isn't it? Yeah, that's a bummer. But uh, just in terms of our discussion, I, I guess this is really sort of where the tour begins to turn. Now, it didn't fully 
turn immediately because after <laughs> Philadelphia, they went to Chicago. There was a pretty standard show there. And then they came out to California for two shows, which I attended, one at Pac Bell Park in San Francisco. That was a quality show. It was, you know, Pac Bell's right on the water. It was a beautiful night. I remember the Promised Land went over well. But again, I felt like the show was a little swallowed by these stadiums. And then he came down to Los Angeles the next night. And I think we made mention of it when Jason was on last week because Jason sort of salvaged the show with the second incarnation of the I'm a rocker side. This was a really flat show. Now, I know Dodger Stadium has a reputation, especially the fans arriving late and leaving early. Some of that is not fully true, I can say, as someone who's there all the time. But certainly the crowd that night <laughs> lived up to their general reputation. It was really a lame crowd and a very flat show. And I remember after that show saying, well, if this is how things are going, I'd been to Jersey, I'd seen five shows, and uh, this show wasn't particularly very good. And I sort of was losing my focus on the tour, but fortunately, we knew that there were going to be shows at Shea. They were waiting for the Mets to be eliminated to announce those shows. And I, I sort of got my mojo back following the set list that you guys were seeing on the East Coast after they left Los Angeles. It's interesting you say that those California shows were, were flat. He did debut across the border, and he I did. thought it was, a, it was a beautiful arrangement. It, it but, was. But, but what, what sticks out to me is that he opened each of those songs with six rockers in a row before getting to Empty Sky. And so usually uh, when he does more songs before the, the acoustic numbers, the better the show. So I'm, I'm very surprised that that they fell flat. Maybe it was... Uh... I don't want to say Pac Bell was flat. Pac Bell was a very nice night, as I said. It was a fun night. It was a good show, not a great show, but certainly the better of the two shows that weekend. Dodger Stadium was just... Something was off that night. I don't know if the band was off, if it was the crowd... Uh, to resurrect the one plus one equals three. <laughs> it did not add up to three that night, I don't think. There was something just off that night. And I think it's telling. These are the last two stadium shows ever played in California to this date. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. Uh, I don't think he has the capacity to sell a stadium show in San Francisco. And even if he does in LA, I, I just think that he's better off and he has shown this. Uh, at least in 2016, we haven't seen him here yet on the current tour because of, unfortunately, the postponements. But I, I just felt something was really missing from that Dodger Stadium show, and and the crowd was was not good. <laughs> Maybe that's it. And you don't think he can sell out SoFi Stadium? <laughs> oh no, ch I don't think there's any chance he can sell out SoFi Stadium. Now the soccer stadium, which holds about I think 32,000 for concerts he could definitely sell out if they wanted to play outdoors here obviously as we know he's doing the two shows at the forum and i think that's the best place for him to play here but I, yeah there was just something missing and i think that that was when he must have said to himself because i think they knew I, they couldn't have felt that that dodger stadium show was a particularly good show 
And they took a 10 day break after that. And when they returned, things really, if Philly was a, a, a turn in the right direction after the first night at Giant Stadium, when they returned for the final three shows of the 10 night stand, beginning with night nine, things really took a turn. And, and I think it just, from there, it never really settled back down, did it? It did not. Uh, yeah, something happened on between August 28th and August 30th. He pulled out Janie Don't You Lose Heart to open the show. He included the second tour performance of Roll of the Dice. And there was something there was something extra extra freeing about him, a little extra energy when he came back. I mean, it was a Saturday night in New Jersey. Obviously, going back to, back to July 26th, that didn't have the best pedigree, but it did this time. Maybe it was because it was Labor Day weekend and the people who didn't go away were were at the show and they wanted to be there and they wanted to see a, a concert, not just again something to do on a Saturday night. But uh it was also a turning point in the in the sense that Worlds Report Worlds Apart was replaced with Because the Night. And so the August twenty eighth performance of Worlds Apart was the last one basically ever because it hasn't been played since. And I think going back to what you said earlier that was that was a major positive i think worlds apart kind of lost some of the crowd it was not a not a hit not a not a fan favorite by by any stretch and because the night was and it enabled bruce to have more guitar and play another solo and it went over tremendously well and i think uh and it stayed in that spot basically except for one or two shows through the remainder of the tour yeah, and it's funny because I was just thinking the other day because, of course, unfortunately, all the horrible stuff that's going on in the world, Worlds Apart would actually be a perfect song if if he was playing right now for him to resurrect. Now, I don't know how it would go over, but thematically, I think it would work well. But you're right. that go, It goes back to what I was saying about the stadiums. And I'm sure there are people going, well, aren't you the guys who always want to hear the new material? And that's a fair comment. But the thing here is, the tour was well towards the end. So it's not like we were like dropped the new material the previous year. Everyone who had wanted to see Worlds Apart had seen Worlds Apart at this point. And the fact is, it just wasn't working that well in the stadiums. And I think the same thing applied to your missing, even though that's one of the best songs he's written in the last 25 years, in my opinion. But again, was it right for a stadium show every night? Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. I don't think it was. So he started to get to a place where he was making the show a little bit more energetic, but I also think he was using more creativity in his song selections. One of the things that it appears he did over these last, what is it, five, six weeks of the tour, instead of using, as he did on the reunion tour, long lost classic songs like Incident and Serenade, here what he did was, and this is why you and I get excited about this, he went to 87 to 93 and used that material to really freshen the show up. Well, I would say 87 to to 98, uh, because there were some pretty cool pretty cool tracks, or at least Cynthia uh, made its made its live debut on August 31st. And that that was a personal holy shit moment for me. It's, it's always been one of my favorite outtakes going back to when I first heard it on a on a crappy tape back in back in 1988. And and then yeah, you're right, the 87 to, to 92 stuff and I guess Janie kind of falls under the uh, the tracks slash B side uh, category, but it was it was a tremendous version. I loved uh, I love Susie's uh, fiddle on this one one as well, and he also brought back this hard land for for a few shows. And I thought the performance on the thirtieth was 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 tremendous again. Yeah, if you look at that show on the 30th, you've got Janie in there. You've got Across the Border with Emmy Lou Harris, which was a very fine performance. This Hard Land. Uh, so, again, you got the Pretty Flamingo in the encores. So things were really getting mixed up. And, and Candy's Room at the Trapped early in the show, which I think really provides for a high-energy opening. And and then the next night, I mean, look, you and I are going to love a show in the first five songs you had Cynthia and Lucky Town and that version of Lucky Town was pretty damn good. Oh, it was uh oh man. <laughs> one of my favorites. Uh, I just loved it and I love listening to it now. It's definitely one of the one of my favorite performances of the song ever. And just after those first five, I I could have gone home. I could have gone home happy. <laughs> uh but then he had a tremendous version of of Lost in the Flood and maybe my my favorite version of Jersey Girl. Jersey Girl. There was nothing totally special about it, but it was after those 10 nights, it was something special. And man, I I left with a smile on my face. I don't think we left the parking lot for another couple hours. We were hanging out and just just high on the show. Yeah. Unfortunately, that was a show that I missed. And I had made the decision to come in for the longer portion of the stand, which seemed to make sense at the time. But I do think there was a real distinction in terms of the quality of the ninth and 10th shows to anything that came before at Giant Stadium. You obviously agree with that. Uh, 100%. 100%. These two shows, these two, these two last shows at Giant Stadium were among my favorite uh, of the tour. I'm talking like top five. Uh, the 31st may have been number one or two. Number two, I guess. Uh, one of the shades would be number one. <laughs> Well, we're going to get the Shay in a moment. We After will. After they left Giant Stadium, they got to Fenway Park, 
which was the first time he'd ever played there. And at that point, I don't think there were a lot of concerts there. I, he wasn't the first, though, was he? I don't remember. All right, well, but, we should, but, we'll, but you're right. There weren't a lot. It was it was kind of a it was a big deal that that he was playing there. And uh, it was uh, I mean, it was such a big deal that they filmed it and then never released it, of course. Uh, another mystery. <laughs> I've always wondered if for some reason they can't extract the audio and, and they don't have it to to merge with the film that they shot. Well, they, they shot on video, I, I, uh, I'm pretty sure, but they still need sound and video to, to sync together. We do know that they released Diddy Wah Diddy, which was the opener both nights as a bonus on the Live in Barcelona DVD. So it certainly at least that portion of the show existed back then, but it's just a complete mystery why they would have filmed these shows, which everyone I think agrees were incredibly high quality and never do anything with it. Well, it was actually my understanding that they did do something with it at the time. They did cut a full, a full DVD of it, a full concert film of, I don't know which night, probably the second. And then of course it sat on untouched for 20 years. And that's, that's just that's a shame it should be out there and it's such a it's not the best performance of frankie at least not to start but it was a uh, pretty pretty good otherwise wait so i'm a little confused you're saying that 20 years ago they pretty much completed a mm-hmm. dvd mm-hmm. version of mm-hmm. one of these shows why yes. wouldn't they now extract the audio and I at least no get idea. that out i have no idea these are it's that's a mystery i don't know it's frustrating. It's out. I mean, I don't know who has it, but uh, I think band members have it. But it's it's it, that's a big mystery. It's and and it's a frustrating one. Yeah, that seems like a mistake to me. If that's actually the case, and I had no reason to doubt it, uh, the second show is a show I didn't attend, but I've listened to that show many many times on the circulating audience tape. I really the especially the sequence of Frankie into Jungle Land the crowd yeah. was so into it, <laughs> and yeah. then you got further on up the road in the encores. There was uh, uh, Dirty Water with Peter Wolf. The well, For- now it's been repeated numerous times, but that was the first time they did it. It, it at least with the East Street Band, he had also appeared in '92, I think, right? Uh, yes, on the second night. Yeah. Except uh, so, December 14th. There was a lot of stuff in these shows that was really interesting. I, everyone I knew who went to Fenway raved about these shows, and they're just now sort of lost to history. So if Very they do have it, they, they really should do something, even if it's just putting this stuff up on YouTube. I, I You're not going to monetize it too much at this point. Uh, what is a rising tour video going to really be worth? I get that, but, uh, you know... Get it out there. It's like what we were talking about with the tracks, too, in the last episode. It's just so frustrating to know that they're holding on to all this stuff. It's like, what do you expect to do with it later on? I mean, Bruce is 74. The fan base is certainly 50s and up for the most part. Just, uh, again, put it out there. Yeah, that's that's a big question. That's a big uh, that's a big frustration. Now, setless wise there is one thing I do want to point out about these two Fenway shows is that he did Born in the USA full band uh replacing land of hope and dreams and it was the first time he had done it full band since since march he he had really gone to the acoustic version to make his point and then even in new jersey i was surprised he never played it full band when just like a couple weeks later here he is doing it 
uh, what three three out of the next four shows or something. So it's uh, that that was kind of kind of weird to me as well. Yeah, I think late in the tour, he did sort of use it as an alternate to Land of Hope and Dreams. One or the other was played. I, yep. I think that was also the case at Shea, as we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. But I, Born in USA, obviously, is a song, uh, we understand, prone to misinterpretation, which is why he switched, I think, to the acoustic version around the time the Iraq War started. But still, obviously, in stadiums, it's it's a gangbuster. Yes, absolutely. And it was... Uh... It sounded great. I guess they had a new sound system, uh, I guess, at the start of the tour. So it's not exactly new. And by this time in 2003, but it really, uh, really hit hard. And I love the the high end, the, the high end symbols on Born in the USA and, and the keyboards. They just sound sound so good on, on those recordings. After Boston, they headed up to Toronto, and that show opened with my rides here. One of the memorial tributes that Flynn mentioned earlier of course, Bruce's close friend, Warren Zevon, had just passed away. And that version of the song is released on one of the tribute albums, correct? Yes, I believe it was called Enjoy Every Sandwich. And hey, that audio they were able to extract. Well, look, I think we know, <laughs> not to get back into that theme, what they extracted 20 years ago they have, and apparently what they've tried to extract 15 years and on later for the archive series they don't have. <laughs> and uh, there's yeah. not much point getting back into that frustration because it no. just, at this point, it's, we've said enough about it. But yeah, we talked about it ad nauseum and there's nothing more yeah. really to say. No. Now, so. he did in this show, and I don't know if it's related to the My Rides here, he did play You're Missing, which did have a brief return here at, at some of these shows, but it also seems like those songs are thematically paired. Yeah, that, that that's a good point. Uh, this one, and then the following two uh, in FedEx outside DC, and even in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, he did uh, tributes to Johnny Cash. I walked the line to open the show, and you're right, he did. You're missing at at both at both nights on both nights. So that probably was uh, kind of a kind of a thematic uh, selection. I I was also surprised that he did Counting on a Miracle there in Toronto. I uh, I thought that one was pretty much gone, but it still made an appearance here and there. Now, you, of course, were at Washington, right? Yes. yes so he did Human Touch, which continues that line of 92, 93 material we were talking about. But he also, speaking of rising songs, and especially quiet rising songs, he does Paradise in a Stadium. Now, uh, we know that's thematic to the location, how did that go over? Because it was a different arrangement than the one they attempted in Asbury, which was really more full band. Yeah, this was a straight acoustic performance of it, just with just Bruce solo. And uh, I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, people I know, the big fans who were in the pit, they enjoyed it. But I was listening to a recording of it earlier, and you can just hear dozens and dozens of conversations going on. So I think for anybody who wasn't a big fan that it was just time to time to talk to their neighbor. It was just very unfortunate because it was such a such a beautiful song. I also noticed that the fuse was played in Landover, Washington. Yes, it was. Uh, going back to the to the reunion tour, and I'm sure I'm going to piss somebody off here. DC did not get the best shows on the reunion tour, uh, <laughs> especially considering when they happened in August and the first of September. That was right after Boston, right before Philly, 
And so you're expecting DC, the three shows in there, to to be pretty special. But no, they were pretty much wrote standard shows for the reunion tour. I guess he may have been trying to trying to make uh, deliver a message playing Born in the USA acoustic all three nights, and but. It was just a disappointment for 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 those of us who lived in these D.C. area that the, the our hometown shows kind of got shafted. So when he did the fuse as the as the fifth song in the set and the fourth rocker, uh, some of us were a little concerned that it was that it was going to happen again. But when he started with Human Touch, and which was basically in that because the night slot, um, we knew it was going to be a little bit different this time. And I think Pink Cadillac uh, also elevated it. At Pinkati opened the encores, and that was a very fun performance as well. Steve's first, it was Steve's first time ever playing it with the E Street Band. So, kind of a cool little uh, footnote there. And the first E Street Band performance since 1985. That actually was a really key song in the encores as the tour went on because it was just so much fun. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. The B sides, Janie and Pinkati, uh, yeah, they uh, they freshened up the show, and they were still from the classic era. And the next show, which was in Chapel Hill, you got two more tour premieres, and again from the eighty-seven to ninety-two period, "Brilliant Disguise," and more importantly, "Living Proof," which was really, I think, very surprising to appear at that point. No, that was a surprise, and it was a very welcome surprise. That's that's for sure. This is when the tour really starts to get interesting, and I was really bummed that I was not at any of these shows. The tour moved to Hartford, and now he really starts pulling shit out from like everywhere <laughs> because the show opens with an acoustic version of The Ghost of Tom Joad, which is just like, it seems pretty crazy in a stadium. And then it also includes Leap of Faith, which is a tour premiere. Was that the East Street Band premiere of Leap of Faith? Yeah, sure was. Sure it was. was. Yeah. And now you did get Empty Sky and you're missing again in these shows. Three straight rising songs because they were followed by Waiting on a Sunny Day. But you also got American Skin, which hadn't been performed very much in 2003. And the encores, which I know was a train wreck, but they were experimenting and having fun. The only performance ever of Let's Be Friends off the Rising. and. It was never repeated again with good reason. But if you've never heard this performance, well, I'll look and see if it's on YouTube and we'll we'll tweet it out if that's the case. Bruce's commentary as the song is falling apart is just classic. Yeah, they just couldn't get the get the melody uh, or even the riff. They couldn't they couldn't get any of it. And the backing vocals were less than stellar. Uh, I don't want to blame anybody, but it uh, it just didn't work. He had some cute, cute line about it. It's been 116 shows. Why wait anymore? And before he started the song and it was fun. I really had hoped he was going to do it again, but uh, it was not to be. And I got to be honest, this was a show. I remember, uh, I forget what day of the week it was. must've been a Monday. And I was watching the set, watching the sound check first and then watching the set list from my work computer. And I had a softball game that night. But it was I was so into the show about what was coming next that I was I was almost late to the softball game. But it also got me to buy a ticket on Southwest Air and go to Hartford on the 18th. And for the second was, show. For the second show. Yes. And there was a hurricane coming. And so I eventually 
scheduled my flight for like 5.30 in the morning, which if you know me is not my best time. But I, I, this is when I was really enthusiastic about the tour. I, anything felt like, felt like anything could happen at this point. And it almost did. And I was so glad that, that I went up on, on the 18th because that, that was a stellar show. And you got three songs, three songs from the Lucky Town album. And I mean, that's, <laughs> that was amazing. And I was so glad I was there. Yeah, this is exactly what we were talking about. It, the, he really freshened these shows up. This show now, I unfortunately wasn't there, but listening to it and on paper, it just has a totally different feel than what he was doing a month prior at Giant Stadium. I mean, the show opened with Souls of the Departed and went in tonight, but also the the use of Souls of the Departed really gave the show a focused opening. Now, it had that, of course, earlier in the tour with The Rising and then also when he was using Born in the USA Acoustic. But I think Souls was such an interesting and unexpected choice that it, it probably caught people off guard that night, no? Well, it didn't catch me off guard because I, I, I was there at the sound check or outside the stadium for the sound check, and I heard him do it, you know, five times or whatever it was. Well, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, one of these things where it's like, where did that come from? And it worked extremely well. And and then he got the crowd back. If if he lost any any of the more casual fans, he got them right back with night, and and then into the rising lonesome day, and then and then leap of faith. So. It was a uh, one of my favorite openings uh, along with August 31st. Now, I know we've just kind of been talking about how he's he's been mining the 73 to 84 material for for the first part of of this leg. But he did a solo piano version of Incident on 57th Street after Mary's Place. That was kind of the, the epic uh slot there. And then but he segued right into Thunder Road. And what had happened was he was obviously he was playing Roy's piano. And as he got to the end of the song, Roy came up and took over basically without any skip, any any dropout at all to go right into Thunder Road. And that was just a that was a tremendous moment and uh, goosebumps, to, to say the least. Yeah, it just seems like it was a fantastic show. And uh, I, I was just counting off the top of my head, 10 songs in, you had seen three songs off of Lucky Town. I mean, that is like... <laughs> That was not expected at all. And so that's when I was loving, as I said, I was loving this part of the tour. I was very enthusiastic about everything. One note about this show, and that uh, that's not related to the set list, was that we were standing basically right in front of Clarence. And some point during the encores, and I forget which song, he actually fell down. And he had a lot of trouble getting up. And it was really scary. I mean, he was right there in front of us, as I said. And it was like, oh, my God. Uh, that's when it really hit me that this thing could end and better to see as many shows as I could before, before it did. Well, fortunately he was okay. And the tour continued. Uh, there was just some stuff that came from this point forward. That it's just <laughs> like, even reading it now, it's like, wow, that happened. They went to Darien Lake. Now the show was originally going to be played at the stadium in Buffalo because of poor ticket sales. It was relocated and downsized. And as it turns out, Darien Lake is right next to an amusement park, which obviously gave him some fuel for the show because the show opened with the tour premiere of Tunnel of Love, went right into Brilliant Disguise. 
And then later on, I, I'll never forget, I was in LA when I got the text that what had happened, I was like, that can't be right. The, I was pretty actually, much the same way. <laughs> I, I, I'm speechless even saying it now, but midway through the show after Mary's place, they did play Counting on a Miracle on this night. And then they pl- did the world live premiere of County Fair. And if you had bet on a thousand songs that Bruce might play that night, I don't think anyone would have put money down on County Fair. I was just like, that could not possibly be right. But it was. And obviously, much like with From Small Things, what it appears happened was it was on his mind because he was working on the third disc of Essentials, which would come out a couple of months later. But still, just crazy to think about. Oh, absolutely nuts. And yeah, that's maybe the biggest holy shit moment of the tour. And listening to the performance, he kind of directs Danny and Susie as as to what to play. I, I got the feeling they hadn't listened to it recently, if ever. And and but they they pulled it off, and I I think it's it sounds great. I mean, it's not the greatest performance of it. Actually, it's only one of the one of two performances of it. The only one with a band. Uh, it may not have been the sharpest, but. It sir, sir made uh, made for some fun listening, and and again, just got us all the hardcores just in a tizzy, <laughs> in a tizzy regard regarding this part of the tour. Yeah, and I've never been the biggest fan of County Fair. Now it was exciting because it was so crazy and unexpected. For me, certainly, the Tunnel of Love performance was bigger because that's one of my very favorite songs. And now I was planning to go to the Shea shows and, and Tunnel of Love had not been played since the Tunnel Tour at that point. So that also was a really big song to reappear. Well, just to fact, fact check you on that one, it was performed once on the Amnesty Tour. Okay. In, well, in, you, in uh, since 88, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, thinking about it, he did County Fair, he did From Small Things, that's two out of the three studio tracks on Essential that he that he did on the tour, but he didn't do None But the Brave. No, but uh, we would see that later in the year, but that's a yes, totally yes. separate story. Yes, but I guess that one probably required more uh, uh, more rehearsal, more uh, it has a more intricate uh, arrangement. Well, and I think the horns helped also, obviously oh, it was oh, done the Christmas, did Christmas? Shows. Okay, yeah. 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 But at this point, it's probably just too much for them to really do. I mean, they were they were really pushing the boundaries here. They really didn't need to do none but the break. And the next show in Detroit, another one with just really unexpected stuff. Again, three songs off of Lucky Town, but this time two songs that hadn't been played previously, Local Hero and My Beautiful Award. Local Hero was one of only three performances ever with the East Street Band. Of course, the third one was just this past May at or April in Newark. But the version of my beautiful award in particular was absolutely gorgeous. Now, of course, it would reappear on the Devils and Dust tour a couple of years later. But uh, you know, as, as we always say, why hasn't that one ever been played again with <laughs> the East Street Band? It worked phenomenally well, and it was uh, very faithful to the the album. Uh, arrangement or actually more it was closer to the 92 93 tour arrangement and so you had uh it just sounded like it and it was beautiful <laughs> it was our beautiful reward and it was just uh, one of these things where yeah let's why couldn't he have done this more but we say that all the time 
Well, I think that after what had happened in that mid-August period, except for Philadelphia, it was pretty clear. He knew, of course, what had happened, especially on July 26th at Giant Stadium, that the show sort of went flat. The Dodger Stadium show I mentioned, and it's notable after the Dodger Stadium show, they took that break. They came back at Giant Stadium and really that's when he started to tinker with the set. And I really do appreciate, and we're going to get to Shea because it really factored in there, that he used these songs that were new to the band and probably new to some of the audience, if not a lot of the audience, to really give the show a charge. And and I think it worked not only for the audience, I think the band really enjoyed playing them. And I know Bruce did. I think Bruce has an affinity, especially for the Lucky Town material, even if he doesn't play it as often as we like. And you would agree, he got a charge out of being able to do this. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, there was a, a certain, a new energy, a, a freshness to, to everything uh, once he started pull, pulling those songs out. And it's one of those things also where he had played so much of the classic material that Unless he was just going to repeat all that stuff, he really had to had to do find something new, find something different to play, and and he did, and it worked uh, as, again. It worked tremendously well, and it really freshened up and made this part of the tour incredibly exciting. Yeah, and another notable thing in Detroit, they covered Heat Wave with Martha Reeves on stage and Kim Farinacci. That also worked really well. That Detroit show was a hot show for for a stadium show. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. The recording's pretty cool. Love listening to that one. Love listening to the previous night in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, one of the shows, two of those shows I wish I could have been at, but uh, can't you can't see them all, unfortunately. Yeah, they were on a roll at this point, and he had a couple more shows before they would get to Shea. They went to Denver, a show that was not well attended, but he did certainly put on a very good show. Again, they were really locked in at this point. He opened with the Bob Seger cover, Get Out of Denver, which seems appropriate. And again, they did Leap of Faith. They did Tunnel of Love and Brilliant Disguise. There was just uh, something across the border. So suddenly there was all these songs from this lost period that he never plays. And it really, I mean, it's interesting to think about now because obviously, once again, we're in a period where you're almost not going to have any chance of seeing these songs. And it's just really cool that he did this the final month of this tour. Oh, absolutely. And he was really even looking to go further with that. He soundchecked Walk Like a Man in Denver, as well as Man's Job, which he played at Shea. But he also soundchecked One Step Up in Milwaukee. So he he was really looking to, to go deep there and, I greatly appreciated it. That's that's for sure. Yeah, the Milwaukee show, too, opening with Candy's Room, included My Love and Brilliant Disguise early on, so that opened pretty big. And then he, the tour debut of the Beer Barrel Polka. He was really into these uh, <laughs> location-specific songs at that point, and I think that one may have stretched it to the final breaking point. But uh, that was followed up by Two Hearts and – the. Uh, uh, in the middle of the show, who'll stop the rain into the fuse? So the fuse making a return here. And I, I think actually in the context of this show, as it was played, I, I think it actually worked pretty well. 
I think it did too. Listening to the recording, I was like, yeah, this this works quite quite well, and it's it segued really well. And going back to the beer beer barrel polka, it just sounded like Danny was just uh, jamming, just kind of ex- going nuts on the accordion. I I don't know how much of an actual song that was, but he uh, he sounded great on the accordion for for two and a half three minutes or whatever it was. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Yeah, and that was the final show before we got to the last stand, which would take place at Shea Stadium in early October. The Mets had been eliminated, and they were able to hold the shows. And this stand, uh, we're going to spend, I'm sure, a fairly significant amount of time talking about it now. Certainly, it's not 15 nights. It's not 10 nights. But I would say for any stand that was less than four shows, four shows or less, in my mind, you would put it up with just about anything. I mean, LA 99, the Staples Center shows, which was a set of four, was a very good stand. But really, the third and fourth shows were above the, the first two. This stand at Shea had three phenomenal shows, and they were very distinct. Very. And I think I said in the other in another episode, he... Uh... He put uh, ten nights worth of rarities in, into into these three shows. Uh, just every night had multiple tour debuts, and and again, it was uh, the unusual unusual material. And what we weren't quite just mining seventy three to eighty four again. We had Man's Job. We had an E Street version of Johnny Ninety Nine Roulette, another Thin Line, and Code of Silence. So he was even going to unreleased material, and that just made the shows even more more special and unique. Yeah. Now, the first night, I felt, had a very political feel to it. It opened with Souls of the Departed, and then the post-Mary's Place segment, and this was not an accident, went American Skin, Into the Fire, Who'll Stop the Rain? Now, we often talk about Who'll Stop the Rain being played because of rain coming down from the sky. This is actually not one of those cases. That was a thematic performance there after those two other songs. And the performance of American Skin, probably not all that surprising, proved to be controversial. I think it upset the members of the NYPD who were present that night. And and I don't recall exactly what their response was, but I remember that being a thing. Yeah, I remember that too. And But I don't remember exactly what happened, whether they did follow through with with uh, boycotting Bruce or not, or not doing their security detail for him or not. But I remember it being a, a big topic of discussion beforehand. Now, of course, for us, the, the tour debut and the only tour performance of, of man's jobs got to be high on our list from, from cool things from this show, as well as Johnny 99 and the arrangement that I imagine the 82 E street version or, or recording of it in the studio sound. Yeah, and Johnny 99, of course, tied in, I think, to the rest of the political stuff in the show. I don't want to overlook that three-song sequence that I mentioned, because really it was, 
a hair-raising sequence. I mean, you knew exactly what he was doing. I think, as you mentioned, there had been some sort of talk before the show that the police did not want American Skin played. And he obviously went ahead and played it. And he certainly punctuated it with Into the Fire and Who'll Stop the Rain. So if anyone was confused about what was on his mind, I think he cleared that up pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure he did. And now I believe this performance of Souls of the Departed included those those audio clips of, of, of George Bush and and others talking about weapons of mass destruction. I don't think that it didn't happen in Hartford. I know that. And, but I don't remember if it happened in Detroit or not, but it certainly was done at this show and, and the following night. And to, and I thought it worked again, just, just excellent. It made for a kind of a, a hair raising uh, kind of open. Yeah. It, th- that show was really, really fiery that first night at Shea. And, uh, of course, as I mentioned, Tunnel is one of my favorite songs. When that started, it was the fifth song into the night. I was so excited, and they tore through that. The Nils solo on the version to Tunnel of Love on this tour was was just truly incredible. Uh, and uh, as an aside, <laughs> talking about the current tour, when we talk about isn't there something that can replace Because the Night, if he did the tunnel of love version and allowed Nils to go off as he did at Shea, Nils would certainly get as big a response as he does to the Because the Night solo. And in fact, I prefer his tunnel of love solo, but that's just an aside. But what a version of the song it was that night. And it went into Brilliant Disguise. The, this was just a great night. I, I To be able to see, and I'm just trying to count off the top of my head here, uh, Souls, th- there was more shows than we ever hoped of seeing not only from 87 to 95, but also because American Skin was played, which was recent, and and he threw in the Who'll Stop the Rain. There, it, the, the show really had a distinct feel. Definitely did. I, I wasn't there, uh, but I listened to the recordings, obviously. And yeah, it had a very different feel. He, he sounded incredibly focused, which... Yes. Which I mean, not to say he's not focused at other shows, but this one he was really bearing down, as as you as you pointed out with the American Skin into the fire, stop the rain trio. He had something to say, and he yeah, was going to say it. I couldn't believe that when that happened because here it was; it was a stadium show, and any one of those three songs, really, in a stadium, you'd be like, okay, it's a little challenging. And then he played all three in a row because who'll stop the rain. It's one thing when he plays it, when it's raining, you know, people are like, Oh, he's mentioning the word rain and it's raining. So they get into it. But here it was played with so much more bite. And I I don't know what got into him that night, but as I said, something was clearly on his mind and, and he made it known. And then you have the, the political song born in the USA in, in the encores. And if there was any more, uh, any more doubt about what he was trying to say, he, he, he said it then. And in a way, I think as we were talking about the switch between born in the USA and land of open dreams, it's a pretty key narrative switch because born in the USA, as we know, is it's a song. It's a protest song. I land of hope and dreams is 
is really saying in many ways something different. Don't you agree? Because Land of Hope and Dreams is aspirational. So I think it really works different there coming out of My City of Ruins than Land of Hope and Dreams does. Well, first off, we have to go back to 2002, where the second encore every night was My City of Ruins, Born in the USA, and Land yes. of Hope and Dreams. Uh, but you're right. Born in the USA is is a protest song. He, he said it himself. And Land of Hope and Dreams is more of a hopeful song. It's more like a, a proud declaration that, that that's what you're looking for. And so it is a major thematic switch when when he plays one as opposed to the other. And and this night and the next night he had a had a few words I think for uh, the current or that the the presidential administration at the time and talking about Dick Cheney and such and he uh, he made it known what uh, what he was trying to say. Yeah, and the other thing that we can say is while the first show was a very political show, he moved off that certainly by the third show I think. Where he he was he was making such a strong statement. Although now, as we get into the second show, the show did open with roulette. So I guess, I guess for at least that moment, there was some politics there. Yes, uh, roulette into Candy's room to open the second show was uh, was a highlight for a lot of people. I mean, the it intensity, was. the intensity of the drums of roulette going right into the intensity of the drums in Candy's room was was a hell of a one-two punch to open the show and then going into the rising and, and lonesome day and, and then ties it behind to kind of close out the opening uh, five song sequence. This was another great show. Now I have an admission to make because I think most people feel the second Shea show was the best of the three shows. And it was certainly a great show. This entire stand was a plus, but I have always felt the third show was the best show of this stand. Well, I was gonna th- gonna bring up that that question as well, but I was gonna wait till we did all three shows first. <laughs> well, I'm mentioning it because people really hold the second show in high esteem, and it's not that I don't think it's a great show. I really enjoyed it, but I, I think I consider it a, a half a notch below many of our friends. Now, there was incredible stuff in the show. You mentioned the roulette and the candies room opening. The version of Souls of the Part of that night, which followed two tour premieres, Rendezvous and Another Thin Line. But I, I remember the Souls of the Departed being very, very fiery. And yes, it was. There, there was a strange placement of Prove It All Night. It, Badlands, which often went into Mary's place or had No Surrender or something after it, on this night had Prove It All Night between Badlands and Mary's place, which was a strange placement. And I thought it worked really well. And it also, it it kind of freshened up the show because again, when you get a song like Prove It All Night in a place where you're not expecting it, like if it had been played the fourth song of the night, like it's traditionally been played, you're like, okay. But here it's, it's, it's like a burst of energy where you're not expecting it right before Mary's place comes in. Oh, I agree with you a hundred percent. He just, it just kicked it up a little bit of a notch, even, even above Badlands at that point. And it really did drive it home that just how how great the these shows were at, at this point and then in, go into mary's place where the the old band intros what did you think of new york city serenade at this show <laughs> it's funny you know i actually and any version of new york city serenade is great of course i had been so lucky to see it on august 11th when it was brought back 
from the ether. And that was one of the greatest moments I've ever seen at any concert. I did not see it again on the reunion tour. I thought, and especially now, since we saw New York City Serenade, well, I saw it at the Wild and the Innocent show in, in 2009, which was another truly epic, incredible moment. And then the 2016 versions. This was really the weakest, and I'm putting weakest <laughs> in air quotes, version of New York City Serenade I've seen. It didn't soar like some of the others. Now, it certainly wasn't bad, but it didn't hit the same notes, I would say. That's an answer to your question. Okay, and I agree with you. I did think this one, it wasn't quite what we saw uh, three years earlier or four years earlier on, no, on, the, on the reunion tour. It was still good. It was still strong, but it just it lacked a little something. And obviously, it was uh, thematic for the location. Um, but the encores, I thought, were also, I mean, Janie and Pink Caddy, the, the B-side uh, combo to open the encores. And then, as we talked about earlier, Born in the USA uh, with that extra bite extra bite in it and then twist and shout with with gary u.s bonds yeah that was that was really cool and let's not leave out al lighter guesting on rosalita <laughs> that was what what about al franken on mary and mary's place that's right there were guests all around this evening it was it was a star-studded audience to be sure and getting back to the start of the encores you are correct the janie don't you lose heart into pink cadillac was wonderful Pink Cadillac, and I don't know how many songs we can say this about, but Pink Cadillac is a song that should be played more because that actually is, it's sort of a quasi hit. Of course, it was on the B side of dancing, but it's so well known and it's been covered by so many people and it really does provide a burst of energy. It was was awesome uh, on that night and it was a great set of encores for Stadium. Yes, it was. Uh, Yeah, I think a lot of DJs did, did flip over the... Dancing in the Dark single and played it. It was, I think it was more than a minor hint, hit, certainly in the New York, New Jersey area. Now, what's odd is that on the handwritten set list for, for the October 3rd show is that Kitty's Back was was on the, was on there instead of uh, Janie and, and Pink Caddy. That would have been a much different, different feel to the start of the encore, is no? A hundred percent. And a mistake because he had played Kitty's Back the night before, well, really, the show before, two nights before, on night one at Shea. So I don't know why that would have been repeated, especially since he was working through so much material here. As as you were saying, he packed a, a, enough tour debuts into three shows, really, for like a 10-night stand. There were six tour debuts alone in the third show. Plus uh, four songs only done once before. So half the 10 songs out of, what, 20-something were are basically incredibly either their first or second time. That's when has that ever happened? It has not happened often. And uh, I don't think we need to get back to the fiasco of the rising tour archives, but certainly if they could access the shows much like they did with the two Paris shows, July 4th and July 5th, 2012, if they could access these shows, absolutely the right move would be to package all three together and release them at one time because there could be no greater document from the rising tour than to do that and have these three shows together. Uh, Yeah, that would be, uh, I prefer not to think about it because it's not going to happen, but yeah, that would be, uh, 
be mind blowing to, to say the least. And it would certainly uh, spawn more 10, three versus 10, four arguments uh, to, to keep us going for a long time. Well, let's get to the final night, October 4th, 2003, the rising tour came to an end. And to me, this is one of the greatest shows of the reunion era. I know, again, the second versus the third show, but what took place on this third night, he really brought it. And at the time, there was some complaints, and I'm really using complaints in air quotes, but like some of the songs were recycled from the Garden Stand three years earlier. Big whoop, that was three years ago. <laughs> right, it was three years earlier, and, and Code of Silence hadn't been played very much, and Blood Brothers was the only fitting ending to the show, so I had no problems there, but what an awesome performance. Uh, incredible performance from start to finish. The Code of Silence opening, the first ever, and I still believe only ever version of I Wish I Were Blind by the E Street Band. Although, disappointingly, he didn't really go full off on the end solo. He just sort of brought the song to a close. But yeah, still, it, was, it, it just... was amazing. And there was a, a great version of Back in Your Arms in there. And every song was, as you were saying, was like a rarity for the tour. Another Thin Line, Johnny 99, Tunnel of Love. The version of Tunnel of Love that night was just face melting. Again, Nils went off. This was just a great, great show. Yeah, I agree with you 110%. Um, I know a lot of people going back to the October 3rd versus October 4th debate. I can see where October 3rd is a little bit more focused uh, in that kind of political realm. I mean, between roulette and souls that have departed. Um, I see that, but I thought August, August, October 4th was a lot more fun. Um, yes. Between Johnny 99, which I guess falls in the, in the political category, uh, another thin line tunnel of love all in a row. Uh, I mean, three tremendous rarities right there. And and as you said, back in your arms, this is probably the uh, my second favorite version ever uh, of the song, my, the first being from Cleveland, 2009. And then with quarter to three, with another star-studded uh, cast of characters on stage, just, just was just so much fun and, and the emotional Blood Brothers to end. I don't think it hit quite as hard for a lot of people as it did three it years earlier. But it hit me damn hard. Uh, you were a little bit harder than it, up a storm. I remember uh, looking over at you. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I was triggered just by the just by the opening chord. So I was in for a, a pretty a long five minutes there of of the of the waterworks. That encore went on for seemingly like it was forever. Twelve songs in the encores, and the main set was fabulous, as we say, but. The show really kicked it up. He opened the encores with the tour premiere of Light a Day. Again, pointing to stuff that had been brought back from the reunion tour. But the reunion tour version of Light of Day, of course, was like 15 minutes. <laughs> this was a tight, compact, storming version of Light a Day to open the encores. It was it was fantastic. Oh, I agree 100%. You had all three guys, uh, Steve, Bruce, Nils, just going, going off on guitar. It was such a... Uh, I mean, it was guitar heavy and the way it should be played. And as you said, tight, compact and what, four and a half, five minutes and not drawn out to, to 15, as you, as you said. 
Now the second song could have been something different, but I guess for uh, the last yeah, night of the tour, worked on that last night. Yeah, as I said, for the last night of the tour, Bobby Jean did did work well. Obviously, I think we could have gone with something more, maybe from '92, but uh, it, wor- it worked well. Well, you already had from '87 to '92. We'd have to total them up. There was a decent amount of stuff in here because of the "I Wish I Were Blind," uh, uh, the Tunnel of Love. There were a lot of uh, light of day, of course. So, and it, what a mix of material in this show! Because mm-hmm. then you also got Johnny Ninety Nine off Nebraska. You got Code of Silence, which was unreleased at that point. Another song that would wind up on Essential Disc Three. It was just a really great mix of songs. And speaking of the encores, let's now get to the <laughs> most controversial portion of the show. Bob Dylan made a guest appearance on Highway 61 Revisited. Now, we had both seen Bruce and Bob play together at the Hall of Fame show in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I've never seen the two of them play together. Have you? I don't think so. No. So this was this was a special special occasion. Yes, it was a special occasion. Was it a special moment? Uh, no. <laughs> we, we can debate that. I'm not exactly sure what was going on during that song. It seemed like Dylan was a little out of sync with Bruce. I, I, I don't know. It's, it, to this day, it just the whole thing comes off as a little weird and in no way takes away from the greatness of this show. It's just sort of like a curiosity. In one respect, I do wonder if they could access the show's would the version of Highway 61 stop them from releasing the show or would they perhaps cut it? I would be fine with them cutting it. It's it's not an essential song from this from this show. And you said Bob may have been out of sync with Bruce. I think he was out of sync with the whole band. It just didn't <laughs> no, sound... Well, that's really what I meant, yeah. It just didn't sound right in, in any way. <laughs> no. It took a long time to even realize what song it was and... And yeah, uh, lots of debate about how uh, whether his, his his song lyrics were anywhere near uh, understandable. Uh, they may not have been for for most of it, but it was really weird. I'm not going to lie. I, yeah. I remember standing there because we had just come through Light of Day, Bobby Jean, Born to Run, Seven Nights to Rock. The place was rocking. Suddenly, Bob Dylan is on stage, which this just the idea of it is really freaking cool. But the performance is like, what's going on here? Are they singing the same song? Well, now I'm now that we're thinking about it, now that we're talking about it, I'm wondering if how spontaneous this this was because it wasn't sound checked. Uh, no, even even the even the band with Bruce didn't run through it. Uh, you would expect that to at least happen so that they would have an idea of what was going on, whether Bob participated and said sound check or not, but. I got the feeling, or I get the feeling now that that was a totally spontaneous moment. And perhaps sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But I hope, uh, yeah, if there's ever any thought of releasing the show and then considering not because of this song, I hope they just just cut it if that's the case. Because it's, as I said, it's not uh, crucial to the to the night. Yeah, I, the song selection also seemed a bit weird. I guess if you were gonna, we'd have to go through all of Dylan's amazing songs. I mean, my first thought would be if Dylan is going to be on stage, they should do like a Rolling Stone with the E Street Band. But it, it, the whole thing was just sort of. Uh, I, 
I don't know. I, 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 I disagree. I think Highway 61 would work. Uh, Bruce had done it at, at the Christic show, so it wasn't yes, he had. totally out of the realm of, of possibility there. And, of course, we don't know what maybe Bob suggested. So if he suggested anything or, or how exactly that worked out. Maybe we should ask Bruce that question when he, when he comes on. <laughs> that would be a, that actually that would happened. be a good one. So then we came down to the final songs of the Rising Tour, quarter to three, which you already mentioned, with a host of guests, including Gary U.S. Bonds. That was really great. I had never seen quarter to three before. I think it's, in fact, the only time I've ever seen it. No, you <laughs> saw it in uh, 2014 at the Mohegan Sun. Oh, you're right. Yes. That that was, <laughs> the, was first the first show, right? Uh, I think so. I, this was yeah, the first yeah. time I had I'd ever seen it. So uh, uh, so I'm sure you're in the same boat. Yeah, it was definitely the first time I had ever seen it. Then Twist and Shout, which was what exactly what you'd expect. And then we got to the final song of the Rising Tour, which was also the final song, of course, of the Reunion Tour. And that is the incredible emotional alternate version of blood brothers now i've always contended and you'll probably agree with this this was probably the last performance of that arrangement ever because now clarence and danny are gone and i don't see this particular version of the song being played again no i i I agree with you i think uh now any tour enders would be something all rocking all over the world or, or higher and higher as they've done or, but yeah. Uh, but I want to question you about the alternate version or the alternate arrangement of blood brothers. I think the only thing alternate about it was the final verse. I thought, well, that's true. I, it, to me, it's a different, or you want to call it a different version. It's obviously got different lyrics. So maybe arrangement wasn't the right word. Well, you said alternate. And when I think of the alternate yeah. blood brothers, I think of the rock version off of that, uh, off of that EP. I see what you're saying. I mean, I think there's numerous alternate versions of Blood Brothers mm-hmm. because you've got the alternate rock version, you've got now this rearranged lyrical version, uh, and several others, as we know from the Blood Brothers documentary. But it was a perfect cap to the evening. And, and the tour. When we left that venue, everyone was really, really happy. Like with three years earlier at the Garden, we weren't really sure what was going to take place from in the future. But as it turned out, of course, there was a long future ahead with the East Street Band. And and with that, the tour was over. Now, you guys went out and (laughs) then ran into Bruce at a party. I unfortunately was not lucky enough that night. But what I had seen over those three nights at Shea was more than enough to make me happy. Yeah, we uh, we went to a a bar somewhere downtown in Manhattan. And then it turns out that... uh, Bruce's uh, tour ending party was was just we're literally right next door, and it was just weird to even consider the odds of that. And when we watched the whole band come out, we we did line ourselves up on the sidewalk so we weren't being too intrusive, and saw almost the entire band come out. We saw Sting, so that that was interesting. And and then Bruce came out and he shook everybody's hand and signed a few autographs, and and we got him to take a picture. Uh, with the whole group of us and that actually got printed in Backstreet's magazine. So that was an amazing way to to end the tour. And I don't think we got home till 5 a.m. So <laughs> it was a it was a long night, but it was certainly worth it. And I was actually more I was actually happier uh, at the end of this tour than I was at the end of the reunion tour. I felt like 
as you said, didn't know what was going to be coming next. And so maybe this was never going to happen again. But I think after seeing the rising tour and after releasing a new album, I think a lot of us felt confident that we would see them again. It wasn't, wasn't like this could have been the last time we ever see them and uh, didn't have that feeling. I fully agree with you. And I think that that's the perfect spot to end this evening. We've done a lot of talking about the rising tour, a very worthy tour, I think, of the discussion, and hopefully people have enjoyed it. I know I certainly have, and it's been fun uh, going, revisiting a lot of these recordings in my own little compilations and just being reminded of, of how much material they did and how great they sounded and just how much fun it was. It was a pretty good, uh, pretty good couple of years for, for us. It was. And hopefully we haven't overstayed our welcome. I'll get right to the wrap up. None But the Brave is presented by Evergreen Podcast and produced by Bullmark Entertainment. Please check out our Patreon page to see our bonus episodes and all the other content we're doing. That's at patreon.com slash Podcast, And on Twitter, we're at MBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and I'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.